Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what to do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Bryony Vince. Bryony is the editor-at-large for International Relations, committee member of the Participatory Research Network, co-editor of the Global Dialogue series for Roman Literature Field International, and is currently wrapping up her PhD at the University of Sheffield in the UK. She is especially interested in context-specific Indigenous approaches to peace building, which we'll be talking about today. So welcome, Bryony. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to have you here. After all of my Twitter stalking, your research looks incredible, and I can't wait to talk about it. So your PhD is about the idea of Ubuntu as a peace-building tool in South Africa. What made you interested in the subject? So when I was doing my undergrad and master's, I learned about how everything that we've been taught about international relations, about peace-building, has been particularly skewed through a Western lens. And so I became quite interested in non-Western approaches to international relations, global, the global IR literature, global international relations literature, which basically looks at how so-called non-Western worldviews or approaches can articulate alternatives to international relations or to peace building. And so I looked at a lot of the, there's a lot of literature looking at is, Islamic approaches to IR. There's a book that I've got on Dharma and how that is can sort of re-articulate alternatives to IR. And Ubuntu was one of the things that came up when I was looking at this. And so I've always been quite interested in, okay, how can we re-articulate international relations? How can we do better, particularly as Western scholars, in making IR and international relations and peace building truly international and not just focusing on top-down or Western approaches? So I did my undergrad and master's thesis on on those and then i realized through doing that there wasn't that much empirical research looking at if alternative worldviews or if alternative approaches are being used on the ground so i kind of took peace building as a as an example here and i I was reading literature on how ubuntu was used as a tool for peace building by the south african government during the transition from apartheid and i found that really interesting and lots of scholars were drawing on that use of Ubuntu as a way to say, look, Ubuntu can be used as a contextually specific, alternative, indigenous approach to peace building, and we should be doing this on the ground. And so I thought, okay, that's great. Well, let's see if that's the case. Let's see if people are using Ubuntu on the ground. So my research essentially asks, how do people understand Ubuntu and practice its values in their everyday lives? Because it was important for me to understand it in the context that I was looking at it in and how has Ubuntu been used and even misused by government, non-government organizations and community organizations to inform peace building. So I wanted to know how, if it was used on the ground, like people are saying, and if so, how, and what can that tell us about peace building and the theory and practice of international relations more broadly? So it particularly speaks to how can we use indigenous approaches or contextually specific approaches to international relations phenomenon in practice and are there any challenges in doing that are they romanticized are they being misused or co-opted so i wanted to try and add nuance into it and that's that's i guess where i where i came from okay and so i mean a lot of the time when people do phd research it's about something that's important to them 
it makes me wonder why why is this topic important to you that's a really good question so i mean as i said i was learning about how what we study in international relations is skewed from a western lens and a european lens and that just really bugged me personally <laughs> i don't know why it just i mean i mean i know why because it's not it's not good and it just really resonated with me during my undergrad and i i just thought i i didn't feel like i could do research that way and in a way that isn't reflective of what the world actually looks like mm -hmm. and i thought it was quite ironic that international relations is called international relations when for most of the, its existence it has only focused on a very small part of the world so quite simply it just bugged me and so tell me then about ubuntu what is it how is it used where is it used tell me all the things okay so ubuntu is commonly defined through the isiklosa and isiZulu phrase umtu ungamuntu ungabantu which loosely translates to I'm a person because of or by or through other people. So it's a worldview or set of values that views human beings as inherently interconnected and unconditionally dependent on one another. It stresses community, sharing, generosity, selflessness. So there's lots of literature on this. What I am interested in and the definition that I take of Ubuntu in my research is how the people that I spoke to define it themselves and how they use it in their everyday lives. So I didn't want to rely too heavily on the academic literature and how Ubuntu is explained in popular discourse. I wanted to forget all of that and find out how people are actually using it on the ground, how they understand it, how it's important to their everyday lives. So I spoke with people who speak Isiklosa in Cape Town, where I did my field work. And I also spoke to people working in community organizations, NGOs who are using Ubuntu. So I spoke to both those people who are using it and those who ascribe to its values personally. And the way that they explained it to me was far more simple than the academic literature makes it out to be, as you can imagine. <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> um, and it was funny because when I was speaking with people, they were saying, nobody's ever really asked me to define what this is because it's not really something that we talk about. It's something that we're just brought up with in our families. And it's just inherent to us. It's what we're taught. It's how we're taught to relate to other people, these values of sharing and generosity and that kind of thing. So it's this implicit thing. And people found it quite difficult to explain what it means in this neat definition way that people seek in academia. And I tried to do a, a method where I was asking people to take photos of things that represent what Ubuntu means to them. Very cool. It, yeah, it would have been cool. It didn't work out, but it would have been very cool. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I, I was going to do that as a non-verbal way of explaining what Ubuntu means to people. Mm -hmm. And that people also found quite difficult when I asked, I gave them the opportunity and I said, you can take them on your phones and send them to me. If anything, if you just stumble upon anything that represents Ubuntu. And it never materialized. And 
it was only until I was writing up that I realized that it's not really something that can be neatly described or even shown visually mm. because it's a set of value. It's, in, it's inherent in how people interact with each other. And I came to the conclusion that I didn't want to define it definitively in the in the thesis but I just wanted to show some of these examples so people were talking about a time where the entire community rallied together to help a friend whose shack had burnt down and she said that neighbors that previously didn't like each other or didn't even talk to each other were there to help and it was things like that so it was generosity sharing ideas of reciprocity this idea of if something happens to me then it happens to my entire community yeah. And people in interviews linked that quite heavily with peace before I even asked them anything about peace building. That's so interesting. So let me ask you about peace building then, as that's my own association with Ubuntu. How does that work? When I spoke to participants about Ubuntu and peace, a lot of people who uh, Kosa said to me that Oh yeah, like Ubuntu, what I think about when I think about Ubuntu is the way that conflicts were resolved like back in the day, uh, where basically the whole community would be involved and say there was a, a dispute between two members of the community, everybody would come together, the victim and the perpetrator would have a chance to tell their story, uh, the community would come to a decision together basically and it would be resolved like that and the point of it was to transform the relationship between these people as a way to create kind of sustainable peace in the community. Um, it, was, it was a very restorative approach to justice. And Ubuntu has been linked to that. Ubuntu values are implicit in restorative approaches to justice. And so that's why it was evoked during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think it also helped after apartheid to kind of give South Africa onus over the, the peace building process, particularly the black South Africans who had been completely marginalized and horrendous human rights violations had happened during apartheid. So it was kind of a way to reclaim South African culture in a way. And so that's the kind of ground as to how Ubuntu is linked to conflict resolution. And because it was used in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a couple of organizations who came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission still use Ubuntu in their community dialogue so they use it as a kind of focal point around which they enter their community dialogues and they can teach people the values of Ubuntu or they frame the the community dialogue sessions through the lens of Ubuntu or they can use Ubuntu language and the, the way that people said that this helped them and I asked them you know what is the value of using Ubuntu and talking about it is that it, it kind of encourages people that are part of the community dialogue so they might be people from different communities like the black and so-called colored communities come together if they're in conflict and it would help them to understand that they have a kind of mutual common humanity or a common struggle uh, it was used also particularly for xenophobic conflict to emphasize that there was this common struggle between locals and foreign nationals and it's used as a method of tolerance i suppose so they're quite a common peace building tool i suppose you know the community dialogues approach and people recognizing that they're relational, they're, they're interconnected, they have a common humanity, but they're using Ubuntu within that as a sort of educational tool, I suppose, or like a focal point around which to use it. Very cool. 
And so how does it actually work on the ground as far as peace building goes in South Africa? Because that came out of your case studies, right? Yeah. So well, when I was speaking with people who speak Isikosa, which includes you, by the way, right? Because I understand you've learned significant Isikosa for your research, which is wild to me. Yeah, I wouldn't say it includes me. I, I'm definitely learning. I tried to learn before I went over and did my interviews. Wait, so you were in Sheffield in the UK learning Isikosa? Yes, which sadly they don't teach at the university. That's or... a huge shock to me. <laughs> I know, I know. And I also tried to find it on Duolingo and they do have loads of languages on there, but it's not on there. And it really, it upset me, <laughs> but. I'm very interested, yeah, and in how you managed to learn. That's incredible, incredible. I did an online summer school from the University of Cape Town and met a wonderful woman called Nolu who taught me Isikosa. It was a three-week summer school, so we did every evening for three weeks. And then she carried on. I asked her if she'd do individual lessons and she carried on teaching. And then she was very kind when I was in Cape Town and I met up with her and her family. And it was amazing. <laughs> It was almost like you were practicing Ubuntu together in this whole process then. It's so true. And actually part of the um, the summer school that we did, she spoke about Ubuntu quite a lot and how it's intertwined with the language and how people speak to each other and how people greet each other, which is really interesting. Anyway, I completely distracted you. We were talking about Ubuntu and peace before I was like, oh, it's yes. the Kosa. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, people, people linked Ubuntu to peace quite a lot, even without me asking about it. And the common thing that people said was that these days in Cape Town, people don't have Ubuntu anymore because there's a lot of conflict, both within and between communities. There's gang violence, there's a high level of gender-based violence. And people were basically saying, we've lost Ubuntu, we need to get Ubuntu back. People don't have it anymore. And it was described to me as the antithesis, basically, to conflict. So... That was interesting to me because I was then thinking, okay, maybe Ubuntu isn't necessarily a tool for peace building, like some of the literature has said. Is it just peace? Is it just the end goal as opposed to the means of achieving peace? So that's one thing that I tackle with actually in the in the thesis is that this understanding of Ubuntu, there's two understandings of it where it's either a set of values that people have or in the academic literature, it's been described as a an alternative to Western peace building, an alternative mm -hmm. to development as a tool for us to do that. And so, yeah, that's something that I'm grappling with in terms of how it's used on the ground. So there's some organizations that are using Ubuntu in their community dialogues workshops, and they use it as a tool to facilitate both dialogue, but also an understanding of mutuality between the people. So they teach people the values of Ubuntu in a way that I think one participant explained it to me as a method of tolerance. So as particularly for xenophobic conflict, it's this idea that we have common struggles. So it's resonating with locals and foreign nationals, getting them together, talking about Ubuntu as this, we're all interconnected. I am because you are those values. Is there anything concrete or consistent across these workshops that you've seen? It depends on the context, really, but it's it's more that they're leading these workshops with the values of Ubuntu as a way to say what you went through. I have also gone through something and we have a shared trauma or a shared experience. 
So there's another organization called the Institute for the Healing of Memories, which kind of have carried on the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And one of the founders of the organization, Father Michael Lapsley, I interviewed him, and he spoke to me about how they do sessions with military veterans who were on opposite sides during apartheid. And they refer to Ubuntu in those kinds of sessions, not necessarily explicitly, sometimes it's implicit. The people who are facilitating those workshops explained to me that Ubuntu values were implicit to the way that the dialogues were being set up. And it's just this idea of relationality. So I'm curious about how this has affected you. When you've been speaking to practitioners of Ubuntu and learning from your interviewees or interlocutors, I mean, have you started to practice something that looks like Ubuntu? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, it's when I was speaking to people, they were all saying this isn't an inherently South African thing. Mm-hmm. It's universal. Ubuntu is obviously a South African word mm-hmm. and it belongs there, but the aim is for it to be a universal worldview and it doesn't discriminate essentially. Mm-hmm. And What's quite nice, actually, is that we did, so I did an exhibition recently showcasing some initial findings from the research. Mm -hmm. And we put it in the public in Sheffield in a place called the Winter Gardens, which is quite in the city centre. So we had pictures and quotes and stuff of our research. There was five of us that did it. And we let people put post-it notes on one side of the exhibition board to leave their reflections. And I actually have them right next to me in my office. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really nice to see how many people resonated with Ubuntu Mm -hmm. because it did show me how universal it is. Mm -hmm. People started thinking, started saying, oh, this this is reminding me of, of racism and how terrible racism is and how we should all treat others, how we want to be treated. And Mm -hmm. all of the post-it notes were just about kindness and it's, it's so it's so lovely. So I think even implicitly it's it's affected me and I want I always want to do research in a way that is full of care and mm. I think it would be ironic to use Ubuntu as a case study and then do research that was extractive and <laughs> not very <laughs> not very full of care. And that's another thing that I'm really passionate about is doing this research in a participatory way um, Mm -hmm. as much as possible. Just for a moment, though, I mean, what actually is participatory research and what's the value of doing it? Yeah, so participatory research in a nutshell is basically research that includes those who are impacted by the research that you're doing in the creation, conduct and dissemination of that research. So... You'd sit down, for example, with um, the community that you're working with and you'd say, what is the most important thing to you? How can this research benefit you? You craft the research questions together. In some participatory projects, they'll have those community members as co-researchers. So you'll train them up. They'll be you know, conducting the research alongside you and with you, essentially to make it the most relevant and impactful to the communities that you're researching and it's a really good way to I would say avoid 
extractive research practices. It's not perfect by all means, there are loads of issues with participatory research. But right now, particularly in academia, it's, I think, one of the best ways that we can start to try to mitigate extractive research practices and make the research that we're doing genuinely impactful for those communities. And it's also a very transparent way or a more transparent way of of doing research. And I mean, I, I think I have a bit of a confession because I think I'm part of the problem with Ubuntu. Because as, you know, before we started recording today, I mentioned to you I used to teach these negotiation mediation, right? And mm-hmm. you know, at one point sort of this idea of well, there are also other views or methods or what have you of peace building in different places in the world. Obviously Ubuntu is usually mentioned as one of the more known ones. But I remember reading a couple of books about it and I didn't really get it because, yeah, from the sort of Western peace building framework or mediation framework, it's quite regimented. It's like you do this, this is it's like very process focused, right? And it's like, well, this is how you group everything. This is like what kind of conflict it is and so on. Mm-hmm. And then I read these books about Ubuntu and I was like, but tell me how to fix things because I was applying that mindset and I wasn't obviously embedded in this worldview of Ubuntu. And so I was definitely part of the problem that you're referring to. So apologies to, to everyone. <laughs> to sorry, South Africa. Sorry, Ubuntu practitioners. I, I, will, I will be reformed, I promise. <laughs> it's a really interesting point, though, because this is something that people ask me quite a lot when I present my research or if they've read a chapter or something. Mm-hmm. So I have a chapter that looks at how NGOs are using Ubuntu as a tool for peace building. Mm-hmm. And after reading it, one of the comments that I got on the initial draft chapter of this was like, yeah, but I still don't understand. (laughs) They were Mm -hmm. like, I don't get how this is used in practice. Mm -hmm. Like, as you said, there isn't a tangible set of like, this is how you do peace building based on Ubuntu. Um, And I think that I, (laughs) I had this issue too. And in a, previous iteration of the chapter I think I tried Mm -hmm. to form that into it so I tried to write it in this way where I was like this is what Ubuntu based peace peace building looks like because I Mm -hmm. thought that that was the purpose of my thesis was to basically Mm -hmm. be like look this is a local approach to peace building I then reflected on that and reminded myself that because when I first started this research I wanted the data to speak for itself Mm -hmm. I wanted as much as possible let the data speak. Obviously, the researcher is never separate from the data, but I wanted it. All research is me search. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I've not heard that before. That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I found myself trying to do that. I was trying to fit it into this. This is how to do peace building with Ubuntu values in mind. And what I realized is that it's not necessarily, so the academic literature says that it's, that it can be used as a tool, it can rearticulate how we do peace building. And it can, and it was used by the government. But the way that people use it is really nuanced. And sometimes, as I said, it is used in workshops. So they'll do community dialogue sessions. And those things, again, this is another thing that people have said to me, like community dialogues are very common local peace building tools. So why does that mean that it's Ubuntu? 
And it, it doesn't mean that it's Ubuntu. It means that they're using the values of Ubuntu within those community dialogues. And sometimes that's just it. It's just a, a, a focal point around which they center these, these dialogues. But I ask, okay, but why are they doing that? It's interesting that they're using these this worldview as a central point. And what is the value added of doing that? Is it because are they trying to localize the peace building that they're doing? Does it provide a language through which they can describe the activities? Does it justify why they're doing what they're doing? A lot of people said that looking at community dialogues or peace building through the lens of Ubuntu lends itself to a more relational approach to peace building. Mm -hmm. So it, it forces you to focus on mending relationships mm -hmm. as opposed to other forms of peace building. It focuses on the fact that the conflict at the end of the day is between relationships and broken relationships, particularly in South Africa, which has had histories of racial conflict and mm -hmm. colonialism. So I think, yeah, it's it's a difficult one to explain practically. And I think you don't necessarily need to. And I think that might be a Western peacebuilding necessity to have to have these tangible approaches that are very neat. And if we do this and this is the outcome. And it's it's interesting because you, you started this answer by saying one of the reviewers asked, but how is it used in practice? And maybe it's, that it's practiced without being used per se, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just done. And you really got me thinking. I was like, all right, well, so if it's a value system or a worldview, how do we learn about those otherwise? And all I could think about was like little kid stories, right? Where you read this, you read a fable or whatever, you, and there's a moral of the story, and you sit around with your teacher in your class or whatever, you say, what's the moral of the story? And that's how you learn values. And so, but then we don't really use values in a way, right? We don't go out to people and say, all right, well, now apply the moral of Little Red Riding Hood. It's something that we actually just live. And so I understand yeah. it in many ways that's what Ubuntu is as a worldview. And perhaps when there's these community dialogues that you've mentioned, it's about reminding people of Little Red Riding Hood or, or, or these underlying stories and shared ideas. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's. I think also it became quite prominent after apartheid because the government utilised it as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm -hmm. It was evoked particularly by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and it was actually added to the South African Constitution um, in the interim constitution in 1993, which was during the transition from apartheid to democracy in South Africa. So it was added to the constitution as claiming that there was a need for Ubuntu. And it was evoked quite a lot in government discourse to the public about we need Ubuntu, we need to be brought together, this idea of the rainbow nation in South Africa. And that was how I also became uh, quite intrigued by it because I think there was a lot of romanticization about Ubuntu and how it was used by the government and also how it can be this you know, alternative indigenous approach to peace building. A lot of people that I spoke to in Cape Town about the government's use of Ubuntu were quite apathetic about it and they said they co-opted Ubuntu as a way to move forward and not have to deal that much with what happened. It was like we need Ubuntu and the government also use it 
arguably to put the onus on individual citizens to resolve conflicts themselves. Whereas this kind of whitewashes the socioeconomic drivers of conflict. Yeah. It puts the onus on individual citizens to be the drivers of change. And I guess that's another issue, particularly when you focus too much on bottom-up peace building. I mean, I am definitely a proponent of local peace building, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but if you put too much onus on the individual citizens, it does obscure the government or national level complicity in the causes of conflict, particularly in South Africa. And so I think we also need to be really careful when we talk about Ubuntu and any indigenous worldviews really so as not to romanticize them and to recognize that they can become co-opted and misused by government and even by NGOs some people have asked me is does this not are your NGOs not co-opting Ubuntu and that's something that I that I focus on in the thesis as well it's a from a different field but when you're talking about this use of Ubuntu to put all the blame on individuals and get them to fix things it reminded me of sort of discussion about burnout where people are told this is how you prevent your own burnout and it's ignoring the fact that maybe they have a toxic boss maybe the organization keeps changing like maybe there's systemic stuff going on and so clearly someone sleeping enough and eating good food is not going to solve a systemic problem and so maybe there's that type of erasure and so just thinking about these interviews you did on the ground in South Africa I want to know what was your favorite thing you learned? And was there anything really, really that surprised you? Ooh, that's a great question. I guess my favorite thing that I learned is the power of community in areas that are still struggling with horrific conflict. Mm -hmm. I spoke to just regular people living in Cape Town. I spoke to NGO workers, more ad hoc community organizations. And it's actually incredible the work that these people are doing a lot of the time unpaid, funding things through their own means, mm -hmm. taking time out of their busy lives to do peace building work, which a lot of the time isn't recognized as real peace building work. Mm -hmm. And it was just incredible to speak to all of these organizations and individual people about how a they're living in sometimes really violent conflict every day in the townships and still they have the spirit of Ubuntu a lot of them still believe in Ubuntu they still believe that other people can have it and they're clinging on to that and the spirit of community is still there even in horrible circumstances and that was probably my favorite thing it was probably this a the saddest and also best thing that I learned as well just this power of community and how yeah it and it was quite shocking how many people were just doing this off their own backs even stuff like soup kitchens individual people who were acting as conflict mediators or doing conflict resolution in their own communities or setting up ad hoc peace committees for example in their communities it was incredible so that was my favorite thing that I learned and I think I want to look more into that thing post PhD because it really it really struck me this unpaid care work of peace building pause there for a moment because when I hear unpaid care is there a particular demographic you found yeah. that you're doing more of this <laughs> can I assume it's women doing this work you assumed correctly yes yes yeah. right 
this is something that I'm, I actually wrote this recently. I wrote a chapter on this recently in my thesis mm -hmm. because this was something that I wasn't intending to find. And yes, a lot of the problems that came out is that this unpaid care work is being done by women. So one woman that I spoke to was a community leader in one of the townships and the amount of work that she does on top of her day job was remarkable. She runs soup kitchen. She works in security at the school. She's part of the local neighborhood watch, which is a voluntary initiative. They act as the first responders on the ground in times of conflict. And she runs a walking bus to transport the children from their homes to school safely because mm -hmm. walking from, from their houses to school is too unsafe. And all of that stuff doesn't get recognized enough as peace building, mm -hmm. particularly in the academic literature, but also I think on the, on the practitioner side. There are people in these communities, a lot of them women, as you said, who are actually doing the brunt of the peace building work and they're not even in community organizations that brand themselves as peace building. It's, yeah, it's incredible. And so when you talk about these organizations that do brand themselves as doing peace building, do they tend to be local or national or international? Is it a case of Western peace builders going to South Africa and saying, we're doing peace building, ignoring what's being done on the ground? Maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe I am. No, so this was something that I thought too before I went over because that's how it had been framed like the the justification for the local turn in peace building was because mm -hmm. western organizations go over to places that they don't know anything about and impose mm -hmm. solutions that aren't relevant to that context that's where I came from and so I was expecting that in Cape Town but actually a lot of the organizations that I spoke to are local they were born from the bottom up in Cape Town Two of the main ones who had the most funding and who were permanent NGOs were born out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So they were created to carry on the work of the TRC. But one of them has now shifted their focus away from South Africa and they now do more international peacebuilding stuff because that's where the funding is. And that's obviously one of the major issues. And the other one still works in South Africa, but they also work internationally. Mm -hmm. uh, which was a common theme for the more permanent ones. The rest of the organizations that I spoke with were completely bottom up. I spoke with a guy called Zoe, who runs an organization called Africa Unite, which do amazing social cohesion work in the townships in Cape Town, particularly around xenophobic conflict. And he, <laughs> I was in the car with him because he took me, I observed one of their social cohesion events they did. And I was in the car with him and he was telling me how he basically started Africa Unite from the boot of his car. He came over from Zimbabwe in, I think, the early 2000s. And he realized how awful the situation was and how badly people like him were being treated in Cape Town. And he started Africa Unite from the boot of his car with all of his own resources. And so, yeah, there was a, quite a lack of... Maybe I might be being naive and I didn't just didn't interact with them. But it does seem that in Cape Town, particularly that a lot of the organizations are local. There's not too much international presence there. I know that that's a good thing for keeping the approaches local, but I don't think it's a good thing in terms of funding because these organizations are so ad hoc. When I was trying to find organizations to speak to, I'd find amazing 
organizations on Facebook and online and see when they were last active and they all just disband. I think I found about 20 of them that I wanted to speak to and they'd all just dissipated. And when I asked people about them, they were just like, yeah, they just, they run out of money or, and what tends to happen is these organizations crop up ad hoc when big instances of conflict or violence happen and then they disband again. And and then now I want to ask you about the surprising thing. What's what surprised you in your research? You haven't escaped this question. <laughs> what surprised me? Goodness, I think a lot of things. Doing a PhD is just surprising. <laughs> <laughs> what surprised me? I would say the first thing, and this isn't necessarily related to what I found, but more just the process of doing research, is I was surprised at how exhausting fieldwork is. <laughs> I knew that it was and I'd been told this, but I would do two interviews a day mm -hmm. and just that would just completely floor me. I'd be absolutely exhausted. I spent four months in Cape Town for my fieldwork and I had to take time off afterwards because I was just so tired from it. So that definitely surprised me because I wasn't expecting to have to take time off after <laughs> fieldwork and I wasn't expecting for it to be so t so tiring. So that's one thing that I would say to any any aspiring PhD students that are listening. Fieldwork is tiring and make sure to take care of yourself while you do it. And my supervisors actually gave me very good, very good advice when I think halfway through they realized I was extremely exhausted. And they just said, look, when you're not doing interviews, just go and have fun. Go and experience Cape Town, go and do some fun stuff because it's it's really hard when you're only over there for a short amount of time you feel like every second needs to be utilized for mm -hmm. field work the second thing is how difficult it was to do participatory research as a phd student so as i said when i did my third masters no third masters sorry you what <laughs> my third, goodness my second masters in uh, social still, research still looks like it still looks like it. <laughs> Um, yeah, we learned about decolonial methodologies and participatory research. So basically including those who are most affected by the research. This is something that I really wanted to do because I didn't want to do extractive research. I wanted to give something to the community. I wanted it to be impactful to the people that I was speaking to. I didn't just want to go over there and interview them and leave, basically. Mm -hmm. And I was reading all of these examples of participatory action research and I was like I'm gonna do this at PhD level I'm I'm gonna go in with basically no research questions we're gonna create research questions together we're gonna do something that's useful for the organizations and very quickly I realized that that was quite an ambitious thing to try to do at PhD level particularly in the time that you're given the funding that you have and also I think quite importantly for me, although I wanted to have that impact on the ground, I wasn't in a position to be able to offer the things that I wanted to be able to offer them. I would have loved to say, okay, we're going to take what we found about the, the funding issues or the challenges of using local knowledge for peace building. We're going to take that to these organizations and we're going to do a research dissemination event and I was going to hire them as co-researchers and all these kinds of things. It just wasn't feasible. And that's fine. And I realized that it's actually okay not to do that at PhD level because that is just extremely overambitious. But that was probably one thing that surprised me. And I do hope that in the future it will be easier for PhD students to be able to do research like that mm -hmm. in a more collaborative, participatory way. 
And so you've hinted at this a bit already, but what's next for you? Because you're handing in your PhD shortly. What's next? I hope it's a holiday. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully submitting in the summer. That's the plan. Afterwards, I really want to move into participatory research. So actually do research that's participatory. I want to stay in the peace building realm. So I think I would quite like to work on a existing project that's using participatory research methods in the field of peace and conflict to learn from those people doing it. Because as I said, you're not really given that opportunity at master's, undergrad, PhD level. So I think that's, that's what I want to do. I want to learn more about how to do that. And yeah, I'm quite interested in how dialogue is used as a tool for peace building, particularly in small scale, well, not small scale, but local level mm-hmm. identity-based conflicts. And something that came up during my research was also the idea of public space, because Cape Town is quite, well, the townships in Cape Town, even just the spatial layout of them breeds conflict because people are living essentially on top of each other. And that came up implicitly a lot in my research. And I was really interested in this idea of public space and whether that helps or hinders dialogue and how dialogue and public space are connected. It's a very rough idea. The Agora, right? So going to the ancient Agora and having a good old chat. Exactly. Yes. Interesting. I've come all the way from non-Western IR theory, looking at Ubuntu as a worldview and then through into the peace building realm. And that's where I'm going, I think, contextually specific approaches to peace building, dialogue, that kind of thing. Very cool. And so for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? I am on Twitter or X as it's now called. It's um, definitely still Twitter. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At Bri Vince on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Brian events and on the University of Sheffield webpages there's a profile of me and it explains more about my research and there's a case study as well explaining in more detail about my PhD. Excellent and I'll make sure to include those links in the description. So look Brian, thanks so much again for joining me today and for everyone else until next time this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.